Is it recording? Yeah, it's recording. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just have to sit inches apart. Your hair just went over it. Did it make like a weird <laughs> sound? Um, should we just start and then explain it? Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm Jess. And this is Find the Lit. Um, Wait, no, it's not. <laughs> it's actually our spin-off. No, yeah, but series. Oh, right. Okay, okay. It's like a sub sub genre of Find the Lit. <laughs> Just getting very complicated. The overarching podcast is still Find the Lit, but this is um, our little side project called Booksplain, where one of us reads a book and explains it to the other person. So today, Jess is going to booksplain to me a book. Um, sorry to all our fans that it's been so long since we last recorded an episode really truly i'm quite embarrassed about that <laughs> yeah yeah sorry we don't have any excuses no no no. <laughs> well i think i've oh no i was gonna say i've moved yet again but i don't actually think i've moved no we've recorded so... loads here oh yeah we have yeah we record <laughs> no 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 but we recorded two here that we never actually released really yeah i'm pretty sure Auden's poems are released and we were sitting oh, at this table no maybe i'm getting confused no we've read two books that we yeah. then didn't record episodes for yeah okay so but this is booksplain and if you're listening bandsplain please don't sue us for <laughs> nicking your name <laughs> so i read um a book called sedated by james davies uh and you basically said that you didn't want to read it because mm. it sounded really depressing. So we thought that it would be a good one to do yeah. book explain for. And I don't really read non-fiction very often. Yeah. I think that's what... Um, we hit a stumbling block with the one you picked, which was non-fiction that I never finished. I need to stop. It was really good, but it had like 200 pages of notes at the back. <laughs> yeah, I need to stop picking non-fiction because I really do need to read more fiction. I've actually decided that, but... Okay, um, no more non-fiction, it's banned. Yeah. Um, our friend Charlie on my Goodreads, or oh, she'll be listening, she'll be one of the few people listening, but she sent a screenshot of my Goodreads and it was this book and then it was another book which was also about the mental health crisis. <laughs> she sent me a screenshot being like, oh, a bit of light reading. <laughs> I really need to give myself a break. Yeah. Um, so uh, James Davies is, um, well, he's an academic at the University of Roehampton in medical anthropology and mental health, but he's also a trained psychotherapist who works in the NHS. Uh, so that's his background. And he also, before this book, he wrote a book called Cracked, Why Psychiatry is Doing More Harm Than Good. So that gives you an, a flavour of mm -hmm. what the tone of, of it is. Um, a rebel rouser. No, is that the phrase? Rabble rouser? <laughs> I don't know. He rouses rebels too. <laughs> Rebel rouser. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a look at, it's UK based, focused, which is really good. So it's based on um, our mental health, the state of our mental health services in the UK, but obviously a lot of it is applicable to other places as well in the West. Um, and really this book is about how society has changed since the 1980s. So it's very focused on neoliberalism and how that has changed society, individuals, 
everything basically like it's changed the sort of moral and economic landscape we live in and how that has impacted our mental health services and how it's essentially individualized them and it's pathologized and medicalized distress and basically made it the individual's problem i'm not texting someone i'm making notes okay <laughs> of questions how rude <laughs> okay um so i don't know how much to go into before well, i have a question one. for you okay yeah what were mental health services before the 1980s? Oh, God. Why would you ask me that? I don't know, because it's not in this book. Um, well, he's well I can, it changed. I can try, yeah, I can try and explain how it changed as a result of neoliberalism. Yeah. Basically, I guess the answer to that question would be that the way we conceptualised mental health would have been very different. And there's all these sort of metrics that you can use to sort of measure how that has happened or the shift in sort of how mental health has been thought about and treated so one is the have you heard of the dsm it's like it that's an internet term dsm dsm cable no <laughs> okay okay I've never, I've never heard of that I don't know. um this in this context yeah. it stands for diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders so it's essentially of course the, i've heard of that it's, yeah hasn't everyone it's like the bible of everything oh, that can be yeah. wrong with you mentally so you, yeah it's like they just look it up and every yeah. weird little thing someone has is just yeah. in there yeah okay. so it's it contains all the disorders i think we're on our fifth edition so there's been editions in the past and it's pretty controversial and fucked up to be honest it's yeah so it's a list of all the mental disorders that psychiatry believes exist and there were 106 listed in there in the early 70s there's now 370 mental disorders in there today so mm. it's obviously hugely increased um and the way james davies kind of puts it is that we've essentially pathologized more and more domains of human experience and we've lowered the bar of mm -hmm. what qualifies as a disorder and it's also worth saying that um the basis by which something is put in the dsm as a disorder is not based on any scientific evidence or um research into neurobiology or anything like that it's voted on by a panel of psychiatrists what not many psychiatrists as well i think that there was about seven or nine who were voting on a couple of editions ago um it's that's crazy yeah. you shouldn't say that way but so like if one if one of them had like shares or stocks in some kind of drug mm. that um could cure this mental disorder they could just vote oh yeah this exists mm -hmm. and this is the perfect drug for it yeah yeah hmm. and there's yeah so there's a whole um sort of thing about the pharmaceutical industry obviously being really overly involved in psychiatry and funding a lot of research and stuff that's done in psychiatry anyway but this specifically the dsm is basically used as a tool by which to medicalize a bunch of stuff which then obviously increases the market for psychiatric psychiatric drugs so psychiatrists or 
clinicians or whatever will use that manual to diagnose someone and then prescribe them okay. drugs. And um, James Davies talks about the fact that when he when he looked it up on Amazon, he was really shocked that it was number one on the Amazon's bestseller list above Harry Potter and Fifty Shades of Grey. And it had been in the top 10 for, I don't know, six months or something. And it's it's it costs $88 or something. So he was like, what the hell? Who's buying all of these? And it turned out that um, pharmaceutical companies were essentially buying them in bulk and distribute, distributing them for free to clinicians because it because it does help it directly helps them sell more drugs okay it sounds like being a psychiatrist is so easy you (laughs) literally have one book you just look up ah this person thinks everyone with blonde hair is actually a elephant oh that's this thing oh this is the exact drug like it sounds so stupid and easy yeah it's so weird because to be a psychiatrist, you have to do a, do a medical degree. So you have to become a doctor first. Then you have to specialise in psychiatry. So you, there's so much training and stuff. Um, but it's not based on any science. Yeah. Well, no, maybe that's a bit unfair to say. Mental disorders, the vast majority of them in the DSM are not... There's no biological markers by which to test for mental health mm. um, disorders. So even depression, there's that um, there's that sort of idea that it's caused by chemical imbalances in the brain. And that is essentially a myth. Oh really? There's no, yeah, there's no there's that. no evidence that oh. that is a thing. Um, so what this does, this DSM, and just generally psychiatry, and, and not all psychiatrists, but there it's very prevalent in psychiatry is to sort of medicalize like try and make mental disorders trying to play the same same framework we apply to physical diseases to mental disorders but there's no um biological way of testing or nothing biological we can point to to be like oh yeah that is the basis that is the cause of Mm. that mental disorder or that mental distress it's quite interesting because i feel like in maybe sort of the campaigning world for people to have their mental health taken seriously, you would kind of positively compare it to physical health. For example, you'd be like, well, if someone had a broken leg, you wouldn't tell them that they had to work. Mm. Therefore, someone's got depression, like they shouldn't have to work. Like it's used as a kind of argument to take it seriously. Yeah, But in reality, it's not the same that you're saying. You can't. Because you can't pinpoint it, you can't just do like an X-ray or yeah a test. But but it's sort of that sort of the assumption underlying that is that the only reason we should take something seriously is if it is a disease spontaneously arising in the body, as in James Davies Davies's James Davies's argument would be that we should take mental distress seriously because of what it indicates about society or that person's situation so you're saying that a lot of our rational responses to living in a system which is pretty messed up and you know diet denies people adequate housing and Mm. you know all of the things you could say about society now you know obviously that's going to cause mental distress to people 
that's mm-hmm. a rational response but we are taking that response and pathologizing it and saying oh you've got a chemical imbalance take this drug and it'll make you feel better do cbt do cbt which is a whole other that's a whole chapter in this is where that where did that medical from. imbalance thing come from then i really thought that was true the chemical imbalance yeah. thing i think it's i think it's marketing but then how so so the whole like genetic argument of can you sort of inherit a disposition mm. for depression mm. is that completely false and is it completely just your environment um obviously there's things it's probably not as simple as saying no it's not passed down in the genes because obviously there's things now like intergenerational trauma right so yeah. i'm just going to turn on <laughs> that heat um well, we're not editing this, Jess. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Your hair just went through your teeth. Oh, for God's sake, I need to tie it up. Um, yeah, intergenerational trauma and things like that. There's increasing research yeah. and things like that. So he doesn't talk about that, actually. But I'm guessing, yeah, if depression isn't as simple as just a chemical imbalance in the brain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it could have been, well, it's a mixture of things, and it could have been... Um, a social issue that made it come to the surface or something I don't know no that's probably a really bad way of putting it because it makes it sound like it's just lying dormant (laughs) waiting but I mean it's it I feel like the reason that I didn't want to read this book is partly because it just sounds depressing um but also it feels to me like kind of obvious Mm -hmm. like I don't know maybe for some people it wouldn't be but because of my job and stuff I'm interested in I just see it so obviously like obviously if someone's about to be evicted or something obviously they're going to be really highly anxious or if someone's grown up in poverty or been in a household experiencing domestic violence they might have depression like it shouldn't be a radical idea it should be mainstream mm-hmm. um and that's probably what's really annoying is that it's so obvious like we shouldn't be having to make the argument it should be like we get that now what are we going to do about it yeah I agree and I think that as well because we come from maybe having read Mark Fisher and people like that so we're sort of used to that argument that late capitalism is very bad for people's mental health and we're used to seeing evidence that you know the more individualistic and neoliberal a country is the higher their rates of Mm -hmm. mental distress and depression and things like that so maybe we're sort of used to that I'd say I mean I did get quite a lot of sort of I mean nothing in the book challenged maybe what I thought politically I didn't realize quite how uh sort of the fact that the medicalization of mental health disorders and stuff, I didn't realise quite how unscientific it was. Mm. So I was surprised at that. And I think what I liked about it is just how it spoke about neoliberalism. I'm used to thinking about neoliberalism and how it impacted the economy and shaped the, the economic landscape we're in now. But it's really interesting to think about it in terms of how it affects our psychology and how it affects how we think about ourselves and how we conceptualise our own distress and stuff. And Mm. I wrote down a Thatcher quote that she said, 
economics are the method the object is to change the heart and soul so her aim or objective was always to change people's value system basically Mm. and their whole personality and she thought that you know the I guess more Keynesian um economics of like the post-world war ii era had basically made people too dependent and lazy and all of that and she wanted to bring about i don't know like self-reliance and independence and all that things and she saw the mechanism by which you do that is to change the economy and how that's not just something which has been imposed well it is something that's been imposed on people but we live that reality in our heads as well mm-hmm. and that is kind of really interesting but also really depressing as well because I think it makes those conversations maybe harder to have with people because it, it's so yeah. deeply rooted I mean as soon as you have like a mental health problem or a crisis or something's not right it's an individual response isn't it you mm. you have to like go to your GP or see a counsellor or take drugs like it's all about you as a individual um it's never like okay what's your like material circumstances that might Mm -hmm. be causing that um I think GPs probably a lot of them do feel this frustration because they're sort of like the front door into mental health services aren't they like you kind of have to get a referral from your GP to Mm -hmm. then be referred to like mental health support and I think they they see it that like a lot of the time it's not a medical problem, it's just some social thing going on with that person. But then what else are they meant to do? That's the thing. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously they're social prescribing and all of that stuff. But I I just wonder like I I know that people's mental health is obviously well not obviously it it seems like and people make the argument that it's a um, an ever increasing like crisis in terms of people's well-being and that does correlate with you know economic economic like austerity and things like that but it is very difficult to sort of compare it to the past because we don't have like data to compare what people's mental health was like in world war Two or something right it's yeah. just like you have to sort of like use other ways of doing it i don't know what i'm trying to say like i i think there's also a, a bit of like as as awareness increases about something you get it feels like it's happening more mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's like saying like oh there were no gay people in 30 years ago but there were obviously it's just they didn't Homose- come out as homosexuality so, was in the dsm as a mental oh my disorder God. until 1974 that was gonna be one of my questions like in the future will they just look at loads of them and go that's mm-hmm. not a disorder yeah there's already stuff in there which is really questionable like I know at one point I don't know if it's still in there but at one point there was like a basically oppositional just like if you opposed authority that was a disorder (gasps) or like was there stuff in there about women like not wanting children or something like just anything that goes against probably expected and then and I was um this isn't in the book actually but I was listening to a podcast with James Davies and he was talking about how there was you know pre-menstrual tension no um it's it's basically i mean it's qualifies as a disorder obviously a lot of women or people who have periods will get maybe their moods swings and stuff before they come on um pmt premenstrual tension is basically when that's particularly bad um 
and they can, I think, I'm sure they can diagnose drugs for it and stuff. But they introduced a new disorder, which is slightly less than premenstrual tension. And they started marketing a drug to women for it. And obviously we don't have marketing drugs mm. in this country. So it was in America and he played the advert for it. And all these women obviously went on this drug because they, you know, inevitably did feel maybe the symptoms that, that they were out um, laying out before their period. The drug company didn't tell these women and these women didn't know that what they were taking was Prozac. Oh. And it was chemically the same as Prozac, but it was just marketed. And this is the thing. This is what you sort of get from the book is that the pharmaceutical industry essentially is just trying to make as many things as possible a mental disorder so they can sell as many drugs as possible. Yeah. So there's that sort of capitalist side of it, which we're used to, but then there's also the side of it which that props up and that helps the political and ideological system we live in, which is neoliberalism, because then it makes it about the individual. Mm -hmm. And also, if you can use drugs to sedate people, then they're not having to face their suffering or maybe deal with their suffering or that suffering is not coming out in other ways yeah. to, to maybe bring about change. Yeah. And also, as an individual, you're probably going to want to just get rid of those feelings because they're inconvenient and you need to keep your job and you need to keep paying the rent. You need to support your family or yeah. pay the mortgage. So you're not going to think, oh, yeah, I need to like fully explore this and feel really hard feelings and maybe like stop working for a year or something to deal with it. Like people just obviously, understandably want to fix the problem yeah. as quick as possible but to survive, like uh -huh. in order to survive. And everyone to some extent complies and conforms in order to survive and get on in the world so yeah. no wonder there's not like a kind of movement against it like a, a sort of vetoing of like drugs it's you're just yeah. gonna do whatever's recommended because, because the system sort of necessitates it he makes a really um he makes a comparison with debt he says that before the 80s personal debt wasn't really a thing unless you bought a house debt was sort of seen as this shameful thing but mm. as neoliberalism came into effect they re they quickly realized that they would need individuals to be able to accrue debt to even just keep the system going so it's like a sticking plaster and that's basically what it's saying pharmaceutical drugs mm. are probably should have said a disclaimer at the beginning he of he does talk about this as well you know obviously it's not about saying that all pharmaceutical drugs that treat mental disorders are worthless or not of value Mm. Um, obviously they can help people like we both know people personally who they have helped yeah however it's just that they are being massively over prescribed and people are staying on them way too long there's his argument is that there's just not enough evidence or the evidence actually suggests that long-term use could be harmful i just think as well there's like so much evidence of things other than drugs that have helped people yeah. but they're harder to prove and they're more expensive um but i mean like i for example yoga now people may roll their eyes but i was talking to someone who's a yoga teacher and he like 20 years ago um had he worked for like three or four months in like a psychiatric ward so with people who were like institutionalized and had sort of like quite severe mental health conditions and stuff 
but he was on a project where he did yoga with them like every other day or something and he he wasn't saying this because of it was him he just said he couldn't believe the difference in people like over time they were just so much more like relaxed but not in a sedated way like some of them who had had quite a lot of like physical manifestations you know like ticks or just things that were clearly like difficult for them to deal with like they were decreasing they all basically said how much they loved it mm-hmm. um and it clearly showed that it helped them um, but then that project just like didn't get funded because it's probably more expensive yeah. than just giving people drugs. But that's just like one tiny example. Obviously, there's millions of things like art and nature and all of that stuff. Surely the drugs would be the last resort in terms of helping someone through or helping someone like manage symptoms or like decrease certain mm. symptoms. Uh, if we lived in a sane society, then yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the answer yeah. um i did it it did make me think of this because i was speaking to a, a woman i was just booking her in for some advice at work i can't remember what it was about um but she said like she said to me i don't have mental health i'm normal and i was like that's quite an interesting use of language because she said i don't have mental health i'm normal i don't and have I, mental health yeah and i health. and i was thinking about afterwards and i was thinking well there's so much talk of mental health that it's like almost like that phrase sort of means mental health problems now for people yeah it's like just you know like the way like language and like common day language just changes so she was just like I don't have mental health because you just hear so much about mental health and the problems right yeah so obviously I did correct her it didn't matter but it's um, almost like mental health has become a woke thing yeah People yeah. want to distance themselves as much as possible. You don't want to have mental health, like, because that's bad. I mean, I if you know. have a mind, you have some degree of mental health. And it just <laughs> made me realise, like, it's it's talked about so much that it's like, to me, it is losing its meaning. It's like if you say yeah. a word so many times in a row, it's just like, doesn't mean anything. I feel like it's we're getting to that point now. Yeah, but it's such a weird sort of... I, I overuse the word paradox and I don't even know really what it means I feel like it's a bit of a paradox in that we're talking more and more and more about it but it's getting worse Yeah. and there's this sort of confusion around why is it getting worse and and he interviews someone in the book who calls it they say it's a cat, it's a category error to look at the fact that things are getting worse and then be like okay we need to prescribe more drugs for it we, you know you need to actually be looking at what are the causes and what is actually what's actually going on in these people's lives to make them miserable yeah. rather than just sort of prescribing them a drug there's a statistic which i think is just on the back of this or something that now 20% of adults in england no, it was in 2019, 20% of adults in England were prescribed a psychiatric drug. So it's a fifth of the adult population is on some That's kind big, of yeah. psychoactive substance. Wow, one in five. Yeah. No. Is that right? Yeah, one in five. Yeah, yeah. yeah you said 20%, that yeah. Wow. Yeah, it reminds me of this, um, this article I read about universities and it, it was a really long article, but it was basically about like the changes and marketization of universities. But one thing I thought was quite interesting, because it kind of made me think about when we were at uni, is that 
obviously now as it as the university's become more marketized and everything there's less emphasis on like a teaching environment basically like there's less money put into the teaching like it's not about having like an intellectually stimulating experience it's just kind of like everything else other than that and an obsession about like your career afterwards Mm -hmm. which we can see at UEA and it basically was saying no wonder like students mental health is supposedly a lot worse because they go to uni with this idea it's going to be like incredible teaching environment like stimulating their mind but instead they're just in like overcrowded crowded seminars like barely have access to their academic staff but are constantly being shouted at like are you is your mental health bad is your mental health bad what's your career going to be like so I feel like students like no wonder because they're not getting the experience of university Mm. like that they kind of go there for I mean I know people do go there specifically for like a career path but when we were at UEA there was just like a few careers advisors you could book a meeting with them if you wanted like now there's you know like well maybe for not much longer that's another issue but there's like nearly 100 members of staff in the careers department um there's so much stuff about mental health support on campus Mm. but like the whole point of going to uni is for the academic yeah stuff and they've haven't they haven't prioritized that and that's got 10 times worse since we were there so they've kind of it's it's kind of just like a microcosm of society like we've made it all worse for people in terms of their expectations and what's going to bring them fulfillment and joy and connection with others but then we've massively increased like the dialogue about mental health at the same time so actually yeah it's not really a paradox at all it makes complete sense because as things are getting worse and there's that is a microcosm of neoliberalism that new managerialism of bringing the market market forces into things which should well the public services you know like calling head teachers ceos or whatever um and like bringing those forces into public services everyone everything's target driven and there's way you know more pressure on people and everyone gets more stressed out and it's more competitive and that makes everyone more miserable so they need to then have this sort of even bigger sticking plaster of mental health but the way that that is the sticking plaster they use which is like drugs and cbt is you know very ideological in the sense that it puts the cause in the individual puts the emphasis on the individual to do something about their faulty you know chemicals or whatever and fix themselves cbt was basically pitched to the government the labor government in 2005 as a way that the government could save money in the economy and get more people back to work and have less people claiming benefits like that was the aim of it mm because it's making you okay with the situation it's not changing the situation Uh i mean like oh i had two things to say i i understand like cbt can be very beneficial and we know people who benefited from it but it it does i I can see a really good sort of dystopian (laughs) sci-fi thing with it because potential with it because it's like how far do we go of making someone okay with a situation yeah like it feels a bit like when you have to kind of um you know like when you're in the army like and you have to be trained to be okay to shoot people or something or you have to be okay with 
witnessing something horrific like if that's all around you but you're just getting I don't know because that's not really what CBT is but what am I trying no, to no, say no 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 but it is in the sense that I mean he literally says CBT is about fixing the individual not the situation yeah. it's about fixing your thought processes your attitudes your behaviours yeah like oh you're 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 feeling bad about this thing that's happening yeah like not that thing is bad let's change that you're yeah. correct it's like you just need to like sort out your brain so yeah. that you don't feel anything anymore about that and I think there's there is a place for that and this is where it gets confusing and maybe mm. a bit more nuanced because it's not it's not like your individual perspective and attitudes is not going to help but there's only so far that can take you and we shouldn't be using that to mask over stuff which is deeply wrong and deeply distressing to people in society yeah like yeah being a human is always going to be hard and so i think you know, there are certain things, techniques or things we can do, yoga, meditation, you know, things which will help you live your life as a human being. But there's plenty of stuff, stuff that goes on, which we shouldn't be medicalizing people to deal with. We should yeah. be changing that stuff to make society a more mentally healthy place. And it's difficult because in reality, like, I don't want to be the one to say mental health services shouldn't get more money. Like, it, I'm yeah. thinking about the practical side of things. Like, obviously, yes, like people are in distress, and mental health services are saying we're really underfunded. And you know, they also compare themselves to like the the rest of the NHS and say we only get like a tiny amount of money compared to everything else in health. Yeah, like we need more funding. And so I think, well, yeah, of course they should get more money. Like more money should be spent on mental health services, but it it does. You have to question, like, well, how much is that actually helping? Really, again, mm. it's like a sort of sticking plaster. Yeah. Um, I don't think there would ever be enough money put into mental health services to suddenly solve everything because mm. so much of it is societal. Yeah, and that is essentially the conclusion of this book, which is it is really depressing. He basically says until the underlying economic system and the va the system of values that we have changes basically any sort of approach which isn't about getting the individual back into the workplace is not going to fly basically so you know that i think the nhs are actually there's iapt which is oh yeah God, i should know that's what, that's what well-being that. is Do you know what that sounds like? um so it's psychological intervention but that's what that's the well-being service. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's well-being. But they are introducing other types of talking therapy into good. that. So it's not just going to be CBT anymore. But it's still ultimately going to be driven by those, you know, survey things. Yeah. You know those questionnaires you fill out before you do the yeah. well-being service. They were produced by pharmaceutical companies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did not know that who make a direct profit from people being prescribed antidepressants mm. and anti-anxiety medication. So yeah, it's it's all going to be about, it's all going to be target driven, it's all going to be about goals. They're not ultimately going to fund, you know, talking therapies or, or psychological interventions or whatever, which empower people to, I don't know, overthrow the system or, you know, mm. think, well, fuck work I'm gonna yeah. I don't know you know what I, you know what I mean it's all yeah. they yeah. it's there to serve a purpose ultimately mm. 
Yeah, and there's stuff like social prescribing, which is like you get a social prescription, not a medical prescription, which is, you know, go do some gardening or like yeah. join this free yoga class. And everyone talks about it like it's an, a new idea and it's kind of weird, I think. Um, but that's now kind of been put into the voluntary sector basically it's like all these little charity projects like yeah you get your social prescribing referrals and stuff and it's a it's the right direction to go in but actually like charities can't solve this on their own mm-hmm. and why you know why did things like youth work and youth centers all close like over the last however many decades of austerity or years of austerity because we know that like youth centres have a massive impact on young people. It's like now they're they've grown up, and they're probably in the twenty percent. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Like it's I'm sort of generalising to make a point, but it's like we've done so much harm in getting rid of public services, and now we're putting naught point naught 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 one percent into social prescribing, mm. and it's like yeah. everyone's suddenly going to well, be they've... helped by a charity, and Literally... it's all fine communities have been community is not really a thing as much Mm. anymore um that's part of the sort of neoliberal project so it is another sticking plaster this is why i didn't want to read this book (laughs) (laughs) give me some drugs i'm depressed now (laughs) i have where's my phone gone yeah, I guess, oh, one thing we I didn't really touch on, mm-hmm. like, one of the parts that I sort of enjoyed the most, probably because it was the most philosophical, was just how it changes our relationship to suffering. And um, mm. I guess we did sort of touch on it, but the whole sort of um, situation at the moment of like consumerism and stuff is that we're taught that to deal with our suffering we either buy stuff or take something or you know there's some external thing we need to acquire to to ease that suffering um which benefits obviously you know everyone trying to sell these solutions and it reminded me of as well the sort of fake spirituality shit that you Mm. get on instagram right where people are trying to like sell people like panaceas but actually suffering to an extent is part of life and in avoiding it or sedating being sedated we're not facing it we're not acknowledging it and therefore like not changing it as well yeah no it's very true i mean there's the whole issue of like self-medication as well in terms of drugs drugs like illegal drugs i guess or prescription drugs that are abused and alcohol yeah that i don't know i suppose people would argue well if mental health services were more funded and quicker off the mark and better then people wouldn't be like Mm -hmm. end up you know in worse situations from becoming too Mm -hmm. reliant on drugs and alcohol yeah it's also the hypocrisy of it because you know the the drugs that are being prescribed mm. yeah may sometimes help but so do so does alcohol and so do other mm. drugs like that they're psychoactive substances that may or may not help someone's symptoms but ultimately they're not treating the cause of the issue because we don't know what the cause of the issue mm. is or the cause of the issue is social or economic not in the individual but it's this sort of bad faith thing of treating prescribed drugs 
like they are treating the disease of mental disorders sorry whereas like alcohol and cannabis and stuff wouldn't be but they're I'm not going to say they're the same thing they're both psychoactive substances which are changing someone's mental state yeah. and helping them cope essentially if you take out the law and what's legal they're yeah. all they're all something that's changing your brain's chemicals yeah. basically i suppose they can hinder and be of benefit depending on how you use them yeah so he says indeed as giles fraser put it to me capitalism doesn't want your inner life to be completely fixed it is happy for you to be a functional depressive or a functional alcoholic because in both instances you are still a functional consumer and that's what really matters in this sense the preferred emotional state for late capitalism is a state of perpetual functional dissatisfaction functional to the extent that you will continue to work and dissatisfied to the extent that you will continue to spend Mm. which could be out of mark fisher i think Mm. that's interesting because yeah they don't really want you to be too content or too thoughtful or too questioning or too like um well fed or well slept (laughs) because well then you're not gonna like yeah because then you might start questioning things and you won't buy stuff yeah you know if you were happy probably you wouldn't need to buy buy so much shit (laughs) i don't know so they don't want you to be happy basically they want you to be miserable or insecure or all those things but they don't want you to stop working so it's about striking the perfect balance Mm. sweet spot yeah and like yeah I don't know what I was going to say, but I said, and like, so I have to say something now. There's the wellness thing, like, it it has taken something real, like meditation or yoga, which you literally don't need anything for, really. Mm. Like, obviously, it's good to be guided in it and taught, but everything's always going to be monetized to the nth degree. I feel like that was a really boring point. No. Cut that out. (laughs) We're, like, sitting in the dark now. (laughs) Yeah, we need to wrap this up. Well, this was only meant to be short. I'm really glad that we've done this. It's the spring equinox today, and it, that's very symbolic of the reawakening, the spring of our final lit podcast. Yes, we're going to breathe a new life into it. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so shall we just say bye then? <laughs> See you for a, another book explain or another final lit soon. Bye. Bye.